Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. One of my favorite music artists is Tom Petty, God Rest His Soul, and one of my favorite songs that he came up with years ago is called The Waiting. And in that line, it famously says, the waiting is the hardest part. Right now, I would say that the waiting is the most important part. Today, we're going to continue our discussion on the quadruple homicide at the University of Idaho. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. Jackie Howard, executive producer with Nancy Grace Crime Stories, my my good friend, my partner. Jackie, we have been waiting. I think the whole country's waiting. They're sitting around, they're wondering what in the world is going on, where's this case going? And day by day, we watch the news. We listen. We listen and we wait. And every now and then, there'll be a bit of a trickle that comes out. Let's start with the latest news in the search for a killer of four University of Idaho students. Police have said they are looking for a white Hyundai. Now, they have not said that they think this person is a person of interest, a suspect, or just a witness. They have said that they believe the car was in the vicinity at the time. So, Number one, what forensics are they going to do to find the car? And number two, why do you think they are looking for this car? I'm a professor as well, you know, at a university. I teach at Jacksonville State. One thing I do know is that at the beginning of every year, you know, when the kids come back from summer, summer break and whatnot, we have to go over to security. We have to go in and we take our registration with us for our vehicles and we hand it to them. And you know what they give us? They give us a sticker. They give us a sticker that goes on the inner portion of our windshield. Now, let's think about the population of this location. It's roughly, I I think it's roughly upwards of 20,000. Most people that are in that town are going to be associated with the University of Idaho. Maybe not most, but a, a, a significant portion. And that means that they'll be required to have a parking pass on their on their car. And uh, universities are different than than other locales. So I would think that the investigators, the first stop that they're going to make relative to this car that they're interested in, is they're going to go to the registration area at the university. And they're going to say, hey, we want to look through the logs here. We want to take a look and see if we can cross-check just in the immediate right now to see if there are any vehicles that belong to anyone on this campus, whether staff members, faculty, or students. We want to know. We want to know. And automatically, if you can get a hit with that kind of proximity, it narrows your field down. Look, this information has gone out, as you say, over the wire at this point. It's nationwide. It's worldwide at this point. And I think everybody and their brother's looking for a white vehicle like this. You remember when the D.C. sniper hit all those years ago, what were they looking for? They were looking for a white van where they saw everybody was looking for a white van. And now the next generation is this white this white four-door that they've got their eye on. The other portion of this is they're going to look through the state files, through the the vehicle registrations in Idaho and probably Oregon and certainly Washington. There's a real close in this particular geographic region. I don't know if a lot of people understand or 
because it's not a location a lot of people have been to. This area up in the Panhandle portion of, of Idaho, they they closely associate themselves with that area over in eastern eastern Washington. As a matter of fact, friends of mine that are up there have said that the town is actually very close to Pullman, Washington, which is where Washington State University is, and it's not that great a distance. So they're going to look for vehicles that are within that geographic region just to start off with. And that's that's a hefty undertaking because there are a lot of these vehicles that are out there similar to this. They're going to have to go through. But they do have specific year model numbers, which is kind of interesting because they've identified something visually on the car that would put it within that category of vehicle, you know, where it is, it's some feature on that car. And I think it's like a two-year block that they're looking at that is unique to that particular model that sets it apart. I'm wondering if whatever it was that keyed the investigators in on this, if it was a camera image or if it was someone that was giving them a description, a verbal description of a vehicle they'd seen in the area, if it's something that the investigators cued in on that makes that vehicle unique. And of course, when we think about forensics, one of the things we always think about that that Jackie, you and I have talked about is the term individualization. And that's the key to all evidence and understanding evidence is the individualization of that evidence. And so that you can tie it back to a specific item or person or time or place. So they've got the road hot right now. They're they're looking for this vehicle. And I, I don't know what it means. My first part, I think, of this is to think, well, maybe somebody was driving by in a vehicle, this type of vehicle, and they may have seen something at that time. Or, if we go back in time, the day after, and we had those images that arose out of the scene where they were taking measurements out in that roadway of those skid marks on the road, those that dark rubber that had been laid down. I'm, I'm wondering if they're thinking that maybe that car generated that. I think that that's something certainly to consider. The media certainly made pay over at that particular time. And if that's the case, then you might have, if they did a lift on the rubber that was left behind in that burn area on the road, if they had a rubber sample, that might give an indication to manufacture of the tires even. There's a lot to consider with this vehicle. And if the vehicle was involved, and I'm not saying that it was, but if it was in fact involved in the slaughter, because that's what this was, then there could very well be a lot of biological evidence contained within the cabin of that car. So if they find the car, they're certainly going to process it just like it was a murder scene. So they're going to take swabs on the inside, look for fingerprints, look for DNA to see if possibly one of the victims were in that car. Officers would be looking for blood if indeed this is a suspect. But if it's not a suspect... And it's just they think this person might have some knowledge of that area at that time. Will they still process the car as if it were a crime scene? I think it would be advisable. If they believe that vehicle was in proximity to this horrific event, if they don't go ahead and document it now and do it as thoroughly as they possibly can, that's a lost moment. I mean, it truly is. You you have to, you know, when... When you're working a death investigation, you know, what's our guiding principle? Our guiding principle relative to deaths is that 
every death is a homicide until proven otherwise. Well, if you extend that line of logic into this vehicle, you would have to think, well, there is a possibility that this car might have linkage. Is it worth it just letting it go and not taking a look at it, not examining it? Now, maybe if the owner is just somebody that was passing by, they might agree to what's referred to as consent search. The cops are not necessarily going to have to get a warrant. Owner of the vehicle says, sure, you can feel free to take a look at my car. But I tell you this, if if that car, if the police have any indication that car might be involved, they are going to get a warrant. And when they get that warrant, they're going to take that vehicle. Hopefully, this vehicle will go to a state crime lab and go to an evidence garage and be properly processed. And when I say properly processed, I'm talking about the seats are going to come out. The carpet's going to come up. And you're talking about swabbing the area. Every surface in there is going to be swabbed. Every square inch of that carpet is going to have ultraviolet light applied to it to look and see if there's anything, any kind of biological substances on there. Uh, the seats, the same thing. If they have to cut samples out, they'll cut samples out. They're going to look beneath Cars have kind of a subflooring as well, like houses do. They'll look in that subflooring of the vehicle to see if anything gets soaked through. They'll look on the backside of the carpet to see if there's anything there, any kind of indication. Because if somebody had a vehicle, and, and this would apply to any vehicle associated with this, there might be an attempt to go out and do what's referred to as a deep cleaning on the vehicle, but you never get everything. You know, if you have a super saturated area of blood, for instance, on a surface of a carpet or on upholstery, if these are not leather seats, for instance, there's high probability it'll leach down into that substrate. And so they'll examine everything both with the the unaided eye and the aided eye, as we say, and try to take samples off of everywhere. Because if not, it's it's going to be a lost moment. They have to do it. And at this point, any information that they can glean is going to be super valuable. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and a big shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing free samples. I live in an area where allergies are a day-to-day issue, and finding an over-the-counter option for relief is like the holy grail. I use Astapro, and I strongly recommend you give it a try. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray, and it's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays can take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. I was speaking with somebody in the media the other day about the Idaho case. They'd asked me, why why is this taking so long to process? And the only way I could think of to frame this so that they could kind of grasp it was I told them that right now the cops are not reading a first grade reader. They're reading War and Peace. The volume of evidence 
that has been collected from this scene is daunting. And it's dense, very dense. And it's layered. And that's specifically what they're looking at right now. So you're telling me that is the reason why it is taking so long to get any evidence or any information back from the blood that evidence that was taken, the fiber evidence that we know that they took. They covered two floors, actually three, if they were doing their job, even though no one was harmed on the first floor. So you're telling me basically there is so much evidence, astronomical numbers to go through. And to be thorough, it's going to take a lot of time. That's precisely what I'm saying, Jackie. I think that any of us would rather these professionals take their time. They're not on the clock. They're not on the media's clock. They're not on the public's clock. They're on their clock. They're on their clock. And science dictates the movement of the clock. And there are certain things that cannot be rushed I'm constantly asked this question about why is it taking this long and how long does it take? Well, there's not a specific formula that you can apply to that because it all depends on what you're talking about. If you just take the bite, let me just to paint the picture here. If you if we want to consider how, you know, I use the term dense just a second ago. If you want to take just the biological evidence alone. And when I say that, I'm, I'm specifically talking about blood and DNA. Yes, it is a bloody scene. I think that most people could probably agree on it. Even without seeing the scene, it's going to be a bloody scene because you've got four individuals that have sustained horrible sharp force injuries to their chest. Okay. And there's all kinds of things that come along with that. First off, you're you're burying this knife into the lungs, the heart. There's not just a chance that they're going to bleed out. There's a chance they're going to aspirate blow out fine part particulate bits of blood and tissue. All of that's going to be there. Okay. Then you begin to think about just print evidence alone. So many people have passed through this house and I'm not talking about police officers that are working the scene. I'm talking about this has been identified as a gathering spot for people off campus. People don't come to gathering spots wearing latex gloves. It, it doesn't happen. Okay. So they're going to show up, and if they're partying, they're holding, I don't know, a plastic cup with a drink in it. They're sitting it down. Maybe they're resting their hand adjacent to the drink on the counter. If it's a smooth, non-pore surface, you can pick up on prints. They're, they're probably overlay prints where you've got people that have placed their hands there, and then sometime later somebody else comes along and places their hand there. You're not talking about an environment where you've got essentially a pristine environment where you only have, say, like an elderly retired couple living there where they have no one that visits them. We're talking about a very dynamic environment that the kids in that school knew about and that the people within the residence had friends of friends of friends that were probably visiting there and they might just pop over. They might just show up spontaneously and a party would erupt or they're going to hang around and watch ball game together or they're going to dance or they're going to study together or do whatever it is that they're doing in this apartment together. So you've got this layering of just fingerprints alone. Think about how much hair has been shed in this environment. Everybody that loses hair, and we all lose hair, just look at your brush if you don't believe it, that you brush your hair with. You look at it and you've got strands of hair all in it. Well, the brush didn't necessarily 
pull that hair, you were shedding that hair anyway. It happened to be caught up in that brush. How much more hair is just laying around this environment? Then you think about touch DNA. You're sloughing skin cells. That's all over the place. What if somebody sneezes? That's all over the place. What about people that are tracking in dirt? I, I looked at the parking pad out back, and it's it's this fine, almost powder-like layer of it's not it's smaller than pea gravel that's covering that parking pad. Well, every time somebody steps out of their vehicle, that surface transfers to the soles of their shoes and they track that in the house. Well, how are you going to separate that out from the old versus the new? So you've got any number of different types of trace evidence that are going to be there in addition to all the other evidence that things that have been left behind over a period of time that may have been originated items, that sort of thing, from other locales that you can't necessarily verify their origin, their point of origin. But at the end of the day, it makes up the totality of that scene. And it, it really it, <laughs> it, it causes me to breathe shallow, as they say, when you begin to think about how much work there is involved in that. And that's the reason that I, I think the governor of the state of Idaho understood this. I think, I think he, if I'm not mistaken, I think he pushed forward like almost a million dollars in emergency funds just to work on this case alone. They have an understanding of this. They understand what they're up against. And there's a lot of people burning the midnight oil on it. You mentioned, Joe, the blood evidence. And if we look at this realistically, if we look at life and the things that we do and what goes on in your world, we have five women living in this house. So there's going to be a lot more biological evidence than just the blood that was found. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, look, we're all adults here. We have to consider this. You've got five premenopausal, obviously, young ladies that are living in this house. There's high probability that they're experiencing menses on a regular basis. All of that's going to be contained, that remnant will be contained in the bathrooms, not to mention if they have girlfriends that are coming over there, you have the same deposit that will be taking place. If anybody's sick, for instance, they could have mucus coming out of their noses. People living in close quarters with one another, this sort of thing, they all pass around a, some kind of virus and they're, they've got runny noses and they're throwing away tissues. You hear about stories where people are collecting bits of, say, DNA matter and that sort of thing from discarded trash. Well, they have discarded trash in this place. Did you happen to look in the window, those images they had? Just on one table alone, it looked like a typical place where college kids lived. There were partially consumed foodstuffs. You had cups that were there that were not in the sink to be washed. They were just sitting on the table. This is a house that had been lived in. You also can't negate the fact that you are probably going to find semen. You absolutely would find semen in this environment. If any of these young ladies are involved in a romantic physical relationship with someone, there would be seminal deposit, you would think, more than likely in the bedrooms, on the surfaces of the mattresses, this sort of thing. And that has to be taken into account, too. So, you know, what do you do as an investigator? You collect that sample and you would want to say, for instance, run it first off to see if the individual was a secretor. And that's 
kind of one of the tests that that's done. You look for any kind of, if you have ejaculate, you look to see if there are actually red blood cells in there to see if they did secrete that that's a specific identifier. And then semen is, is evidence rich relative to DNA sample. You would want to see if you can develop a profile in that semen. It doesn't necessarily mean that that sample is associated directly with a crime. However, it is a deposit of DNA and you have to run that test. If you find something that's unidentified, they have to run it and see if they can develop a profile off of it. Because right now, as it stands right now, and as we have heard the chief of police say, they don't have a suspect. Now, that, that's all going to change. You know, At some point in time, they'll say we have person of interest or we have suspect. But to this point, they're not saying that. So every possibility is on the table at this point. How many tests are conducted on each piece of evidence that comes out? I mean, is it just like blood? You say, okay, this blood type and it's only this person. Or are there other tests that would be run on each piece of evidence? It's kind of like building a house. You're going to bring the tools that are necessary to build a house, all right? And and every tool has a specific purpose. So it all depends on what they're trying to achieve, what data they're attempting to collect. If they're going to examine for latent prints, let's just say, there are certain tests that they'll that they can run if they can appreciate a, like a latent print that's on that appears to be very fragile, and they knew that if they applied fingerprint dust to it, they might want to superglue fume that item, for instance, okay? And that way, that image of that that print will be captured in that space and it'll be frozen in time. It ceases to be fragile at that point in time. Same applies with, with DNA. If you only have a partial strand of DNA, if you're thinking about a short tandem repeat STR, you've only got a, a portion of the strand of DNA. There is kind of a modeling that goes on with that test where you're having to replicate strand to try to develop on on 13 different points along the strand of the DNA. Whereas if you have a complete strand DNA where you have intact an intact molecule, then they can run this and develop a profile off of it. So it all depends on the status of the evidence that they collect, how robust it is, how intact it is. And there are... We could get off into hair comparisons, and there will be hair at the scene. And that's something that you would do under a comparison microscope, for instance. If you have a known sample of hair, for instance, from one of the victims, and you have an unknown that's found immediately adjacent, they can do what's called the gross examination on the hair, and that means that they compare it by viewing it. Uh, it's not You're not necessarily doing a chemical test on it. You're doing a visual test on it to see if these two hairs match up, if you think that their point of origin is from the same location. And they'll try to determine that with a reasonable level of scientific validity. For every item that's there, it might require a specific type of test. And again, that's, that's why it's quite interesting, I think at least, from a scientific standpoint, that many times the more data you have, the the more complex the case becomes, you're drowning, you're awash, if you will, in evidence and evidence testing. And I can only imagine these people that are doing this work sometimes feel like, you know, they are drowning in evidence, but you have to work the evidence and work your way through it. Because once you get those results back, that's the point in time when you push it out to the investigators. You're not going to push it out to them prior to the test being completed. They've said famously, I think earlier this week, in regards to this, they're starting to get results back from the lab. They didn't say what those results were. They didn't even say what the tests were. They just said they're starting to get results back. Well, what does that mean? It can mean anything. We found a print. 
Well, that's a result. You found a print. Did you identify who the print belonged to? No, but we found a print. So, you know, or we didn't find, we did in fact type, we determined the type of blood that was at the scene. Well, whose blood is it? I don't know, but it is a type of blood. And so you can have results that are coming back. You're not necessarily going to have more information than you previously did that's going to lead you to who perpetrated the crime. So when you have the evidence and tests have been conducted, you have said some multiple tests on some samples. At what point is that sample destroyed so that no more tests can be conducted? It's at the point where, particularly when you're talking about items like, say, for instance, if we've got blood evidence that's presenting on a shirt, okay, or on a on a piece of cloth, for instance, where you've either got transfer or you've got some kind of dynamic event that has caused a blood pattern to appear on the item itself. In order to appreciate that, say, per lighting, you can illuminate and you'll have to apply a particular type of agent to that shirt to make it luminesce. Well, once you do that, you kind of compromise the DNA, okay, that might be contained therein on the surface of that. Or... If you're collecting, say you're having to cut an item up like a piece of cloth or item of clothing, once that has been submitted, they're only going to take a portion of that of that question sample of blood. Now, it all depends on how skilled the technician is in getting to that question sample and how much they're going to need in order to test. Now, you can take one droplet, for instance, of a question droplet and kind of trim off that area and apply it for testing. And then you still have some sample left. But if you're getting false positives or depending upon what the test you're running is, you might have to go back to the well, if you will. And the more you kind of trim this thing off, the more you're diminishing the sample. And that that is truly an example of destructive testing, which you never want to go down that far that far down the road. So they have to take care in what they're doing. And and one of the most important things that happens with the testing of blood at these scenes where you have these commingled samples is to try to determine whose blood you actually have and trying to separate those items out. So if you have a sample, you're going to look for red blood cells, you know, which to me always look like microscopically, they always look like gigantic sliced beets, if you will, when you see them. I guess it's one of the reasons I don't like to eat beets. But, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was just picturing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you have you have these and dependent upon the markers that are contained on that red blood cell, they can determine the type of blood. And that type of blood, blood type is what I'm saying. They know that that can be assigned to a, a specific individual. And then with that, you d- begin to develop a DNA profile of the individual, but it's it's a matter of getting those types separated because there's going to be a lot of commingled samples. And that's one of the fascinating things about utilizing the weapon that was used because that just that action alone, if it was a single weapon, we still don't know that. All we know is that it was, they have said, a military-style weapon, a Rambo-style weapon, a, a hunting-style weapon, K-bar, they've used that term. Yeah, but Joe, it's been pointed out just in our conversations that just because it was a large weapon does not necessarily mean that it is a military type weapon. I mean, you have some pretty big butcher knives, too. I got to tell you, this this is one of the issues that's really kind of confounded me because they were very specific about it. And what's interesting is that this information wasn't sourced from the forensic pathologist. 
my understanding is, is that the genesis of that data point relative to the so-called military style knife, this, this arose from the media asking questions about what the police were looking for in stores. And according to the media, the police officers were going into stores saying, have you sold a military style knife? Well, police aren't qualified to determine based upon injuries, particularly those, those injuries that have not been cleaned yet. Just what they saw at the scene, they're not qualified to make a diagnosis of what generated those injuries. So that leads me to to something I've been speculating about. I, I do know that with military knives, I do know that with military knives, one of the components that comes with a military knife is a sheath. And I've wondered all along, well, they've made a lot of hay about this style of knife. Did the perpetrator possibly drop the sheath at the scene? And I think that that's, that's a legitimate question. Maybe they didn't, but I don't, I don't see how you get to military style knife. And I can talk about the knife all day long. I can talk about the quality of them, composition of them. I can talk to you about the components of them, what they look like and what kind of injuries they'll leave behind. But it's just so very specific. You mentioned butcher knife. Well, yeah. And if it's a butcher knife, then you're getting off into a different area there because homes have butcher knives. Does that mean that if it's a butcher knife, did the person show up armed with a butcher knife or is it a weapon of convenience? Is it something that they went into the kitchen and found and then utilized? I think that there's a higher probability with a group of young ladies that are living there that are living out their college life and going to sororities and parties and all these sorts of things. I guess they could own a military knife, maybe. You know, they're free to go buy one, but I would say that there's a higher likelihood that they would have a butcher knife in the house or something to cut food with and prepare food with, as opposed to, you know, what one news reporter referred to as a Rambo knife. That doesn't make sense. far more families ask me this question when I would tell them that their loved one had died. They'd want to know where are they? You would think that most people would say what happened. It's not the case. Every notification I ever made, not everyone, but many of them, the family would want to know where are they? It's a natural reaction to the reality of death. You want to flee to that person. You want to verify in your own mind that your loved one has passed on. That's the reality of being a death investigator. And when I heard that items from the home, from the location, were being returned to family members, I understood on one level why the family would want those items back because at this point they have nothing else other than memories. They would want to have items that they could hold on to, those things that they can embrace and know that they were part of their child's life, even at the moment of their death. I have the utmost respect and compassion for these families and what they're going through. But at the same time, I have to wonder, because of what I have learned from you, you said the phrase earlier, lost moment, I think is what you used. 
if these items return to families, and I know that they're not returning everything, they're not boxing up the entire room, just certain items are being returned to families. But I have to wonder if for some reason you have to go back and think that something, a piece of jewelry, a bedspread, clothing, if you think that that might have a clue now that you didn't think was a clue then, then you've lost that moment. That moment is gone forever and ever, amen, once it's released. I think to start off with, you you lose context for the item and the scene. And yeah, the scene has been photographed. Yes, the scene has been measured. They've probably even done 3D imaging inside of the home, which takes thousands of measurements and high-resolution images. And that's all fine and good. But once an item is removed from the scene, you cannot go back and place it in its original position. You know, I think that begs another question. If they're releasing these items, does that mean that they're about to release the entire scene? Because if you're taking components of the scene out, then that means that in a broad sense that your work at the scene is done. You know, my hope is, is that they've considered all of this, that they've sat around and they've sat around with experts. They've sat around with technicians. They've sat around with the investigators and said, okay, this is a list of things we're going to remove. Are we sure that we have fully documented them to the best of my ability? Because let me tell you what's just over the horizon when this person is caught. Just over the horizon waiting for them out there and this team that is putting this case together right now is a defense attorney, and they're watching this. They might not be aware that they're going to be the defense attorney at this point in time, but they will become a defense attorney. And this is one of the questions that's going to be asked. They're going to say, why were these items removed from the scene, but yet you kept the scene intact? It seems counterintuitive. Why not just release the scene in total? Why are you piecemealing it at this point in time? And they're going to say, well, we documented, we took photographs, we did 3D imaging and all of this, but still it remains you're taking items out of a scene that otherwise is still locked down. Why? What's the urgency in this? I don't understand that. And it doesn't necessarily have to be explained to me. It certainly doesn't. It, where it's going to have to be explained is in a court of law. When I teach students about crime scene investigation, I, I always tell them to... Treat every crime scene as if when you're taking a step, there's potential you're going to step on a landmine. And to me, this is a landmine. You have an opportunity to really do harm to the case. Because if you're going to release it, release it. If you're not, then don't. Why are you going to piecemeal it at this point in time? And people will say, well, these are items that have sentimental value to the family. I understand that. As I stated just a moment ago, I understand how families behave and they're in these circumstances. But sentimentality is not going to count in the courts. It's not, particularly when you're looking to get a conviction. Okay, so you have to make sure that this is fully documented, that everything is covered. Any items that you think might have depositions of of any kind of biological substances on it. And sometimes you just cannot fully appreciate them and see that at the scene. I have had cases where families have shown me items that I missed at the scene where there was a big deposition of blood on it and I missed it. I've had tissue that's found at scenes. 
on items after I have left. You don't see everything at the scene when you are there. And granted, they've been there for a while. I just hope that all their bases are covered. Well, tell me again. You started telling a little bit about it. Tell me again how they do that. How do they cover all their bases? You mentioned 3D renderings. You mentioned measuring. How do they do that? Going to these items that would have, for instance, swabbed at the scene to look for any kind of deposition of DNA, anything that the unaided eye might not have picked up on, those items would have had to have been dusted. And then those things that you don't think that are directly related to the case would not have been touched by the evidence team. They might have just been photographed in situ, as they say, or in place. The only thing I could really make out the other day, someone had mentioned boots the other day that they saw being taken out. I saw a computer screen that was being walked out by one agent and, and given to somebody. I don't know what the sentimental value in that is, but it was being taken out and given to somebody. Maybe it's one of the people that lives downstairs. Maybe they need their computer to do their work. I have no idea. So you have to go through each item and see if there is a potential for it to have any kind of forensic value whatsoever. And it would have to have been carefully examined in place because once an item is removed from the place that it occupied, and you remember I was talking about context just a second ago, even if you brought that item back, you could not place it in the exact position in which it had previously been in. So you lose context in its relationship to the space in which it occupies the wall behind it, the wall beside of it, the door in front of it, or maybe even the body to the right of it. But what does that actually tell you? I mean, you've referred to that several times, the context of where it is. What kind of things does that really tell you? Well, for instance, if you have a dynamic event like a stabbing, you've got certainly, I think the most obvious thing you would have is, is cast off from a blade. A blade is being thrust into somebody's body and then drawn out with great violence. It'll be supersaturated with blood. Well, you know, when that happens, you've got this kind of arcing path of blood that travels out and behind the perpetrators they are withdrawing the blade. Well, just that action in and of itself could lead to blood being deposited on some surface or some item that may have sentimental value. And the police not, might not be aware of it, but yet they've gone in and they've collected it all. I think my question is... How do you go through and vet what has sentimental value and what has evidentiary value? Is it possible to have examined that item in place in that scene without having gone to ideal conditions at a laboratory before you release it to a family? This stuff is being released directly to a family from a crime scene. It's not just coming from the crime lab after it's been examined under great lighting circumstances and having tools at your disposal that you would need to conduct a thorough examination. That's not happening here. You're releasing it directly from a crime scene to a family. It's being placed into the back of a U-Haul truck and then delivered to families. And I guess they're separating out in individual boxes. So now you've got all these items that were in in different locations in this house, presumably, now they're all being boxed together and placed into one location together and being transported. Any kind of evidentiary value they may have had is totally lost at that point in time. And when I say context, everything revolves around the bodies. Where were these items in relation to the bodies at the time of the homicide? Is anything from within the rooms in which the bodies were found or any of those items being collected out of there and removed from those rooms? I'd say that that's a big no-no. 
Okay, what about the areas that the perpetrator may have walked through carrying a knife, maybe resting their hand upon, maybe brushing up against something in those rooms? What, what items out of those rooms are being removed because they have sentimental value and being handed over to family members? We don't know at this point in time, but we do know that there are items that have been identified to have, quote unquote, sentimental value that are being turned over to families. And once they're gone, they're gone. You can't go back and take these items and place them back in their original position. It's empirically impossible. Well, not only that, which what you said, obviously, everything is extremely important. But the family, when they get things, most likely they're going to clean them. Yeah, I don't know who in the world would want to have this item. They're certainly going to handle them. They're going to handle them. They're going to look at them. They're going to consider them. And if there was evidence there, you know, what are they going to do? Are they going to box it up and keep it back for sentimental value? Or are they going to place it up on the shelf? Well, before you would place it up on the shelf, you would think that they would take some kind of agent, wipe it down, maybe furniture polish or something, and wipe the dust off of it, set it up on a stand so that they can take a look at it and hold on to it. And just what we were talking about earlier, that tactile sense that families want to hang on to something, something that was part and parcel of their child's life. And I agree with that. I agree that they should have those items. I just don't know about the timing. My default position in all of this is I feel as though that the police down in Florida really set the path forward when it comes to crime scenes. And we begin to talk about Nicholas Cruz and Parkland. That, that entire building was locked down for years, for years. Five years, I think. Yeah, and if any of, and I think that we even talked about this on an episode of Body Bags. You go back and you listen to those statements from the reporters that follow the jury members into that building, and it's soul crushing. It's horrible. You know, they talked about desiccated roses that were laying on the floor, teddy bears with hearts on them, all these things that happened that day, that Valentine's Day. But yet, you could still back, still go back as a jury and contextualize that event. And the relationship that those items had, those forensic items had to the events of that day. They knew that Nicholas Cruz killed those kids in that school and those staff members. Guess what? As of right now, there ain't no suspect in this case in Idaho. We still don't know who did this. But yet, you're releasing items from the scene because they have sentimental value. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is is body bags.